there's a reality in life that things in life will eventually fail us. Sorry to tell you this, Cowboys fans, but they will eventually <laughs> fail you. It'll be, it'll be later on towards the end of the season as you have your hopes high. But yeah, I mean, honestly, everything will eventually fail us. Our, our vehicles will fail us. Uh, our water heater will fail us. Uh, thank God for some of us, our memories will fail us a little bit. <laughs> our looks will eventually fail us all. T-Mobile, our cell service will fail us. The internet will fail us. Even the leaders around you and I, they are going to fail us. The government will fail us, period. Um, <laughs> any, <laughs> just period, the end. Even I will fail you. Leaders at a church, like, we're all going to, like, someone's going to fail us. Someone's going to let us down eventually. I mean, even within marriage, your spouse is not perfect. Did you know that? You married a person who still sins. And so they'll eventually fail you. Your children will eventually fail you. You will fail yourself. At some point in time in life, things are going to fail us. And when things fail us, they cause us a lot of pain. It somewhat breaks our heart. And if not careful, as it disappoints us when things fail us, it can cause us to, to kind of wall ourselves off against everyone. It can cause us to like, you know what, I'm not going to be vulnerable anymore because I've been hurt too many times by other people's failures. And so if that is your strategy, I think C.S. Lewis uh, wants to help you with that. He says this, love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, and he's being a little cheeky here, if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. And so we are going to allow ourselves at times to be disappointed for things to fail us. And so here's the reality. Things will fail us in life. It is what it is. Let's pray and go home. Lord, I'm just kidding. There's one thing, however, there's one, as a matter of fact, that will never fail us. There is one who gives us promises and his promises always come true. There is one who has his word and has given his word to us, and his word will never fail. And his name is? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus never fails us. Now, do you believe that, though? Do you, do you really believe that? Because that's the question that the text is posing us today. Will the word of God or has the word of God failed. And so we're continuing our journey through the book of Romans. And maybe you're new with us today. Maybe you came to the fall festival. We're glad you're here. Um, if, if you want to catch up on any of this, it's online. It's on our website. It's on YouTube. It's somewhere. Or you can grab a Bible and just read the first nine chapters and you'll get into it. Uh, but last week we started chapter nine, which is a big transition in the book of Romans in the Bible. And it's very foundational. Paul is the guy writing this. We believe that God is inspiring him to write this 2,000 years ago to a church in Rome. There were two types, two different groups of people uh, in the church at that time. There were the, the Greek people or the Gentiles and everyone who was non-Jewish back then were Gentiles and they had come to know Jesus so they became Christians. And there were also Jewish people, Jewish people of the Old Testament, people who followed God of you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they also came to know Jesus as well. And so Paul's like, this is what life looks like together, and this is how God has saved you. And so up until this point, the Jewish people were, like I said last week, probably scratching their heads a little bit of like, how is Paul arriving at this? Like, what is going on? Because you think about the Jewish people of the time, as we learned from the text last week, was armed with 
with the Old Testament. They knew that they were an adopted nation. They knew that they had the glory, the covenants, the law of God, the temple, the promises, the patriarchs. And from that, even even from their own people, the Jewish people, came the Messiah. And we know the Messiah to be Jesus. So the question is, Paul is asking is, why haven't they trusted their long-awaited Messiah? Why have not all Jewish people just like, hey, Jesus is the, is the one? And so as we said last week, it may feel like to them, the Jewish people there hearing this, that Paul's trying to undermine God's word to Israel, undermine God's promises that you see laid out in the Old Testament, but God is not. It may also sound like he was against his fellow Jewish brother and sister. We learned last week that Paul loved his fellow Jewish brother and sister, so much so that he wished He wished that he could give up his salvation. He wished he could give up his seat on the bus in order for them to experience a salvation as well. But he he can't. And so Paul is beginning to explain to them and to us God's plan of saving his Old Testament people. And I think as he explains this over the coming weeks and this week as well, Christians, we should lean in and listen to this. Because they've been assuming something upon God's promises that are not true. But God's word has not failed. And that's what we're going to see today. So if you've got a Bible, go to Romans chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. And so if you do not own a Bible, we have them in English right, and Spanish right up here and out at Center Point as well. And if you've got a smartphone, you can download version. Click events and all my notes will pop up. And then once my notes pop up, you can just tune me out the whole time. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. I worked really hard on this. <laughs> But Paul is going to make a statement in the first part of 6. He's, he's going to say something like this, that, but it is not as the, though the word of God has failed, meaning God's word has not failed. We can trust God's word to be God's word and that God is a God of his word. And we can trust his promises that we can believe upon them. We can stake our whole lives on God's word. See, what it seems like Paul's doing by the Holy Spirit's inspiration is bringing clarity to God's promises. And I think we need clarity. Why? Uh, Because sometimes we may misunderstand the promises of God. And that'll mess us up because we think sometimes like, oh, become a Christian and everything in my life is going to be amazing. I'll never struggle with anything ever again. I'll never have hardships or tribulations. They'll never make another Fast and the Furious movie. All things are going to be great. I'll never have marriage problems. I'll never have parenting problems. It's going to be amazing. I'll get the job in college of my choice. But then what happens? You suffer. And they make another Fast and the Furious movie. (laughs) And we think, well, I thought God promised that everything was going to be great. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. You don't have to go there. I'll throw it up on screen for you. Jesus said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And we're like, hooray, we have peace in Jesus. And I believe it to be so. In the world, you will have tribulations. What does tribulations mean? Trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. It's good news, but you're going to have trouble in this world. Or we looked at this a couple weeks ago from Peter in 1 Peter 5.10. It says this, and after you have suffered a little while, if you remember, what, how long is a little while? This life now compared to eternity is a little while. You're going to suffer. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, that's personal, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so what Paul's going to be doing in the text today is just bringing clarity, and we need clarity. We need as much clarity as possible. So why uh, have, have Jewish people not trusted the Messiah? Well, the first thing that you can rule out is not because of God's word, because God's word has not failed. Romans 9, verse 6. 
It says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now he gives us a little bit bigger picture. He says, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. Meaning, God never promised every person who claimed Israel would be saved. Now, some of you may push back on that, but hi, what about the Old Testament? What, what about what's going on there? What Paul's doing, he's clarifying this. There is an Israel inside of Israel, okay? And uh, we need a little bit of a history dig on this. Uh, who was the father of Israel? Or who was like the, 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 the main person, the patriarch? Who was the, the founder of the faith? Who was it? Abraham. That'd be good to dig into Abraham's story a little bit. You can go to Genesis 12. That's where it starts at. Or you can uh, let me just kind of storytell it and go read it afterwards. But Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And Genesis just means beginnings. Okay. And so in verse 12, you see Abram. And you'll hear me say Abram or Abraham. And uh, Abram was his name, but it changed to Abraham. Same guy. You see a little bit of a story there. And actually before Genesis 12, you can trace his history there. But what we know about Abram when you get to Genesis 12 is he, can, he comes from a pagan nation uh, and he has pagan worship practices. He's worshiping a pagan god. Is that good or is that bad? And yet God calls him out. God picks him. God elects him. God chooses him. Abraham, if you look in, a, in, in Genesis 12, Abraham didn't choose God. Abraham didn't pick God. No, God pulls him out. And this is really, really good news for us. But why? Because there wasn't anything good in Abraham, but there was a good God that saves bad people. Is that good news for us? <sighs> That's really good for us. Why? Because sometimes we think, you know what? God, he gives good things to good people, and God only picks and saves good people, but the reality is all God is working with is not so good people. Am I right? And that would be us as well. So in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham to pack it up. He's moving. Uh, he promised him that he's going to make him a great nation, that he's going to bless him. At the time, Abraham was about 75 years old. Was anyone in here about 75 years old? Raise your hand. Does anyone in here feel like you're 75 years old? Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. So Abraham, he obeyed God and didn't really know where he was going, but God led him to a place and he took Sarah and Lot, his nephew, and a bunch of people with him. And so then later on, God promises him land. Uh, Abraham gets in a little bit of trouble because there's another leader out there in this land he's going through. And, and apparently, Abraham's wife, her, his name, her name is? Apparently, she's very attractive. And so he basically said, oh, that's not my wife. That's my sister. I mean, that's like, I'm from Kentucky. And like, I don't even say that. Nonetheless... <laughs> Kind of gives up his wife, and then Pharaoh has a dream, and, his bed, and like, he's like, nope, you can have her back. I don't want to sin against your God. Uh, and so it, like, you know, there's some, there's some um, shady stuff going on there. When you get up to uh, chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. He makes this very relational promise to Abraham, and God's going to be the one that fulfills it on both ends. But he's saying, Abraham, you're going to be a big nation, and through you... The world is going to be blessed. Even people that aren't Jewish, they're going to be blessed. And so uh, he has a wife named Sarah, and there's a whole problem with this promise. Because God is saying this promise is going to come through Abraham, but Abraham and his wife are past the years of making babies because they're old. And so what does Sarah do? Sarah has a stroke of genius, and she said, Well, look, we have a servant here. Her name is Hagar. Abraham, why don't you... Um, Stay the night with her, if you know what I mean. And then that way you can have a child. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? 
a horrible idea. Hor- I just wonder what look Abraham had on his face like, what? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, what? And so uh, they, they, they did the deal, and uh, through Abraham, Hagar had Ishmael. Ishmael. And then the family began to feud, and the family is still feuding to this day. See the Middle East, if you don't believe me. So none, nonetheless, um, you know, you have Sarah there in camp, and you have uh, Hagar there, and they're just kind of giving each other dirty looks and not liking it. And Sarah's like, she's got to go. <laughs> they got to go. And sure enough, they send them out. Uh, and then God comes to Abraham, Abram again, and says, you know what? Um, like, this covenant is with you. And so in this new covenant, um, Abraham is supposed to be circumcised. And then uh, from that point in Genesis 17, all Jewish males uh, are to be circumcised. It's, it's somewhat a sign of the covenant and that they belong to God. And when you think of circumcision in the New Testament, think baptism, kind of, sort of, similar, kind of, sort of, not. Not just in functionality, people. I just mean some meaning behind it. But anyway, uh, but God says, hey, I promise that a, a, that a child is going to come from you, Abram. And look at verse 9 of Romans 9. It says, for, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. How old is Sarah at this moment? 90. 90. And so Sarah gets pregnant. Old people do what old people be doing, and then she got pregnant by a miracle of God. Now, I, 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 do, I do want to put this in context. I want you to think about what does 90 look like. Here's a picture of my granny. This is my granny. She's 93 years old. I love my granny. She's still in her right mind. She lives on her own. She's just a beautiful human being. She loves Jesus. She's great. And I will add, my granny is way cooler than yours, yours because of My apologies. I cut, it, I cut it up before she started doing West Side Signs. So, <laughs> nonetheless, just want to give you an idea of 90. <laughs> hey, real quick, if you're watching from Kentucky, do not tell my granny I did that. <laughs> She'll be so confused. Don't do it. Anywho, uh, so together, together, Abraham and Sarah have a son. Now, let's count up how many sons does Abram have at this point moment. One plus one equals... Okay, now go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 7. <laughs> yeah, way to go. <laughs> okay, go back to Romans 9, verse 7. It says this, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Who does this rule out? Ishmael. So what Paul is saying, giving a point of, is this, that Every descendant of Abraham is not saved. That has never been promised by God up until this point. Now, wait, there's some stuff coming, but up until this point. Now, who is saved of, of Israel? Who is saved of the Jewish people? Well, you hear this language of Old Test- in the Old Testament of remnant. If you've read the Old Testament, you've seen or heard remnant. Uh, and then later on, Paul, he kind of uh, interprets and, and quotes Isaiah. You look down at Romans 9, uh, verse 27, 28. Paul is quoting and kind of interpreting Isaiah. He says, and Isaiah cried out, uh, concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, which was the original promise, only a, what's that word? Remnant, Remnant of them will be saved. 
for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And so there is an Israel by birth, by connection to Abraham, but they're not all called the true Israel. What does that mean? Well, thank goodness Paul gives us some more explanation. Verse 8, he says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, that means like of skin and bones of like just people who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offsprings. Meaning, just because you came from Abraham's lineage does not mean that you are a part of the promise. That's him clarifying the promise. Just because you're of the flesh doesn't mean you're of the promise. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans chapter 2. You can go back or I'll put it on the screen. Romans 2, you see this as well. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But it is. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the? By the? Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so remember I said that baptism is kind of like that? Like you can get baptized on the outside, but have you really been saved? Are you really a Christian of the heart? And the same thing was then. You may have the ritual of being circumcised as a Jewish person, but are you really circumcised of the heart by the Spirit? And so the question Paul is posing at the beginning, has the Word of God failed? And the answer emphatically is what? No, it, it has not. Now, as you sit there right now, you're like, hey, this is a great history lesson. What does this matter for me? Well, it matters a whole lot. It really does. Why? Well, as we see right here, just because you are Jew-ish doesn't mean you're Jewish. And just because you're Christian doesn't mean you're Christian. It's like Paul was saying in this text right here. He's saying there is a visible Israel. They have the markings of Israel. They're the Israel that everyone would see. And yet there's also an invisible Israel that only God sees. God sees his true people. The same is true of the church, I believe. Augustine, one of the great um, theologians of old, I think he coined the term visible and invisible church. There's a visible church, that's everyone you see here, and people who say that they're Christians. There are people who come from families of Christians and Catholics and all that say, hey, we're Christians as well because that's what our family does. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians because they do Christian things. What are some Christian things that Christians do? Give me a few. Come to church. Hey, oh, what else? Pray. What else? Read your Bible. What else? Help others. What else? Charity. What else? Tithe. What else? Christmas lights. What else? <laughs> I was going to say, I thought someone's like, judge people. What else? <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of Christian things you can do. There's a lot of people who come from Christian families. Anyone in here have Christian parents? You have Christian parents? Thanks be to God. Christian grandparents? Yeah. Yeah, you come from a long line of Christians, and like you've done Christian things, you've been baptized, you've been, and you come from a long line. It's, that, this is a great thing. Hey, for bonus points, you got a pastor in your family? Hey, oh, all right. You made it. Woo. <laughs> Lots of people in the visible church. But what matters is not that you belong to the visible church. What matters is that you belong to the invisible church, the one that God sees as truly saved. See, we cannot know who is truly saved. We can't. We can guess that people are saved. We can look at their, the fruit of their lives. We can look at the desires of their hearts. We can listen to their professions, but only God can see the hearts. Many people here, I've 
prayed the sinner's prayer or gone to some kind of revival or have been baptized or have done a lot of Christian things. But the question is, are you truly a, a Christian? Because there's a reality of like, maybe not all are in here and surely not everyone out there who professes to be a Christian is actually a Christian. This is what Paul was getting at with the, the Jewish people as well. It's same with us. So how can I know if I'm a Christian? I'm glad you asked. Jesus had this interaction in John chapter 3 with a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is like, hey, how, how can I get to heaven? How can I be saved? And Jesus says this in John 3.3. 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, what's the two words? Born again. Born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again is a language maybe uh, from, from past times when people said, I'm a born again Christian. People really struggle with using that word again, but Jesus doesn't struggle saying it. And so it is a truth that you must be born again that you must be saved by Christ. My, my prayer is that Grace Point Church, that you are born again. My, my prayer is that you're just not doing Christian things or relying on your Christian heritage, which are two great things, but you have truly had your hearts turned. You've had your hearts changed. You've, you've had your hearts transformed by Jesus, that you are a Christian. Now, some of you are wondering, well, how would I know? Now you're a little bit nervous. Like, how do I know if I'm saved? I don't know. I can give you a couple things. Number one, desires. Do you desire Jesus? You may say he's your greatest desire, but it's not always my strongest desire. But okay, but do you desire Jesus? Do you desire the things of Christ? Do you desire his word? Do you, do you have desires to honor him? Do you have desires to please him? Do you desire Jesus? The second thing I would say would be fruit. So the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kind of like we, we, like, we see fruit in our life. Jesus said you can know a tree by their fruit. Uh, Ferguson Sinclair, a pastor, he said this, and I think it's very helpful. Listen to his words. You know that you're saved because salvation begins to appear in your life. You desire new and different things. The law of God that you regarded as an enemy and an irritation becomes a friend, and you want to keep it. You want to please Christ rather than let him down. All these are very simple things. You begin to love the people who love the Lord Jesus. Listen, friends, you are not saved by your religious Christian activity. You are not saved by being baptized as a baby, being baptized as a child, being baptized as a teenager, being baptized as an adult, because baptism doesn't save you, because that would be a work. You are not saved by how much Bible you've read and memorized. You're not saved by how much you pray. You're only saved by Jesus. And you are not saved because you had an uncle pastor. You are not saved because you had a granny who loved the Lord. You are not saved because you were raised around Christian things. Just because I walk into a garage does not make me a mechanic. You are only saved by Jesus. So not just a history lesson. I think this matters to us as well. If you have any questions about that, please see one of us after. There's a prayer point. Let me keep going. Paul's going to keep illustrating. He's going to keep going through Abraham's family. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, not, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And so the story continues with Abraham's promised son, Isaac, and he had a wife named Rebekah. Now pay attention to the details here. Uh, God is going to adjust our thinking when it comes to who does what's good and bad. Look at verse 11 and 12. Talking about the two sons in her womb. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him 
who calls. That would be God who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Let me give you a little context here. Rebecca is pregnant with twins, uh, or as we say, she has two buns in the oven. Uh, their names are Jacob and Esau, and um, they're, they're brothers. Now, I have a brother. We're pretty close in age, not twins, uh, but we fought all of the time. Did you have a brother as well? It was relentless. Uh, well, they fought more than you and your brother because it says in the Bible, they fought in the womb. God bless Rebecca. <laughs> like an MMA match going on inside of her. Well, God comes to her while these two children, these two sons are in the womb. He said, hey, these are not just sons of yours. These are nations, nations inside of you. That's what he says. Uh, which, to side note, um, this, God's making this comment while they're in the womb. So that, that, that says something about what God thinks about babies in the womb. He cares for them. And I think if it matters to God, it matters to us as well. Also, God said that the older will serve the younger. Well, in that culture and time period, that would have been like, wait, what? He's turning something on its head. Because in that time period, the oldest son got a double portion of the inheritance. And when the dad passed on, the older son led the family. They became the patriarch. And so what, uh, what God is saying right here is like, no, that's going to be flipped upside down. Jacob is actually going to be the one that leads, not Esau. Uh, and so this is what happens. So she has Esau and she has Jacob. The Bible gives us a little context about uh, Esau's looks. It says that Esau was red and hairy. Think Elmo, Chewbacca, have a baby. That'll give, uh, that's always, because like later on, Jacob disguises himself and puts goat hair all over his body. So that's hairy. Uh, and, and so if you get it, if you, this is going to be an oversimplification of the story. You can go back and read it. But if you look into the story, um, you see that Esau is kind of an outdoorsy person. And he's daddy's boy. He likes to go hunting and fishing and all that kind of stuff. And then you have uh, Jacob. He's more of an indoorsy kind of guy. He's baking with mom. He's a little bit of a mama's boy. Uh, and so that you can see that they have favorites. And you see this work out into their dysfunctional family terribly. Am I right? Do we need to pause and, at, and talk about having favorites of children? You have your favorite kid. Am I right? You will when the airplane is going down and you got to put your oxygen mask on the ones who are going to take care of you later on in life. And so at that moment, you'll be like, oh, there's my favorite right there. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, really dysfunctional going on here. One, one day Esau was out hunting. He was starving and uh, Jacob was there cooking up a bowl of stew and Esau was like, oh, I'm about to die. And he's like, I got this good stew right here. He's like, hey, I'll trade, or I'll trade my birthright for it. Or Jacob asked for that because Jacob was pretty shady. He just really was. He's actually really shady. His, his, his name means liar or deceiver or uh, supplanter. And so basically, um, impulsively, Esau gives up his birthright to where Esau or Jacob now has it. Question. As you look at Jacob and Esau's life, I just barely described it. You can go and read about it. Are they good guys or bad guys? And the answer is bad, bad guys. There's, there, there's really not, there's not a good about them, right? Like, they do, like if you really look into the story, they do some bad things. Now go back to Romans 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born, so they weren't even born and had done neither uh, are either good or bad. So, so they haven't done anything uh, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who called. So you have twin brothers from the same mother and same father. Both would have been circumcised into the family. That way they had been holistically Jewish but there's going to be a difference between the two. And what is the difference between the two? You see it right there in verse 11. It says that something might continue. What is the something that might continue? What's the word? It's right in the text. No, 
had done nothing either in order that God's purpose of? Election. Election. Election doesn't mean voting like we're getting ready to do here pretty soon. God help us. Um, but election like, remember Abraham? Did Abraham choose God or did God choose Abraham? That's what he's talking about right there. Uh, friends, God is not lost. You know, sometimes we say, I found God. He's not lost. <laughs> he knows exactly where he's at. We are the ones that lost. And so we see this right here, even before anything in their lives, even before they've done good or bad, religious or irreligious, anything whatsoever, God chooses. He, he chooses. What does election mean? Election in the Bible means this. God must do something to save humans. God must act. Uh, when it comes to election, we'll be talking about this over the next few weeks because it's in the Bible. We don't, we don't shy away from hard things in the Bible. When it comes to election, there's a lot of different views from the Bible. Uh, you have the idea of double predestination. It's, I'm going to nerd out real quick. Double predestination means that God elects some to be saved and God elects some to not be saved. You have singular uh, predestination, which means that all humanity has chosen hell, chosen rebellion against God, and God in his good grace and mercy plucks some out of this you know, train going to hell. Uh, either one of those will fit within a biblical view. They really will as, you, as we start to read the Bible. There's one view that I think we need to discuss because it's a kind of a common view that I'm going to say I don't think in light of our text and in light of the text to come and in light of the Bible as a whole that, uh, that is compatible with the Bible. It's the idea of foreknowledge, that some think that God has foreknowledge, and foreknowledge means that God looks down the tunnel of time who will uh, trust him or who will choose him and who will not choose him, and that's his predestination election. That is, that, that is incompatible with the Bible. It, it really is. Now, I know when we talk about you're like, well, what about free will? Do human beings have free will? Well, we need to define what free will actually is. If you mean we have free will to choose which ice cream I want, I want strawberry ice cream, I don't want vanilla ice cream. Or if we get to choose of like, am I going to play in the street with the cars or am I not going to play in the street with the cars? Yeah, I would say, hey, we have free will. I can go jump off a bridge if I want to. Yeah, that's free will. But the question we need to ask is this. Do we have freedom of will? Meaning... Is my will, by default position, free to go choose God? Is it free to love God? Is it free to go do the things of God? Is it, is it free? And our Bibles emphatically, if you've been with us through the series of Romans, has told us it's enslaved, that sin has enslaved it. That's what all that language, if you remember, you've been with us, that in Adam language, in Adam, you're dead, in Adam, you know, you're enslaved to sin. In, like, we have bondage of the will to where we cannot, we don't have the ability. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one, but it's all over the book of Romans and the Bible. Romans 3, verses 9 through 12 says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, which is everybody, are under sin. As it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Who, who doesn't seek for God? No, our will can't. Our will just wants us. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All that's to say is that God has to act. God has to do something. 
God has to initiate. God has to change us. God has to take us from death to life. Now, for some of us, you've probably heard some really bad teaching on this, and you're really struggling with this right now because you're like, I feel like God's in heaven just playing this wicked game of duck, duck, damned, and I don't like it at all. That's not what it is at all. It's actually really good news that God purpose. He gives us purpose and direction. Russ Moore is a theologian of our times. He said this, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God is not treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us along by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. Like God is intentional. God is purposeful. I love the way Spurgeon, Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers uh, ever, he says this, outside of Jesus, of course, he said this, and I believe what he says, like, I know me. I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. I would have never became a Christian. I became a Christian in my 20s. I stayed away from church, Jesus, God, Bible, and God saved me. I was like, what? (laughs) It's like, "Uh uh-uh, yeah. And so God had to choose me. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else never would have chosen me afterwards. Amen? (laughs) True. Now, I'm going to pause there. I'm not going to talk about any more election stuff because uh, the the, the week's coming up. And I don't want to lay the cards on the table too quick. I don't want to answer every question. It would be foolish for me to do that. And so more is coming. And and let's let the, the Bible speak. Let's let God unwind that for us. But we do have one last verse And this is a a quote from the Old Testament book of Malachi. It's Romans 9, 13. Look at our last verse here. As it is written, Jacob, remember the two twins, Jacob I love. So this is God speaking this. Jacob I've loved and Esau I hated. This is jarring. This is is, uh, uh, prophetically coming from God in the Old Testament in uh, Malachi. Now, for some of us, we're like, wait a minute, God hates? Well, if God hates, I want to be like God too. And there's some people I want to hate. (laughs) Whatever politically political party you don't like, hate them, because God hates people too. You, you know, of course, we can go back, back and forth to that. Your mantra now is, Murphy's gas I love, Costco gas I hate, or whatever it is. Uh, we feel like we can hate, but that's, that's not what's going on here. That's not what's happening at, at all. Uh, when you see the word hate in this context, it's what's called a Jewish idiom. You know what an idiom is, right? A Jewish idiom. Like if I say, hold your horses. Do you have horses? <laughs> Put the pedal to the metal. Huh, you must be speaking French. Parlez-vous <laughs> français? Like, you're not, you know, you, you get what I'm saying there? Like, hey, give me a hand doesn't mean I'm going to cut my hand off and like, here's my hand. Like, right? That, that's, a, that's an idiom right here. And so uh, what Paul doing, he's showing this as, as an idiom and what, what it is. This is not emotional language from God at all. What he's saying is, Jacob, I've accepted. Esau, I have rejected. That's what he's saying right here. It also is, it's about supreme love. Jacob, I supremely love. And Esau is is a lesser love. Now, Jesus does this as well. We look at Luke 14, 26. Jesus did this. He says, anyone comes 
to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so it looks like Jesus is saying, hey, you want to be a, a follower of Jesus? You want to be a Christian? you got to hate your family. And some of you are like, amen, nailed it. That's not what he's saying. Why? Well, let's let other scriptures line this up. Uh, remember the Ten Commandments? What does it say we're supposed to do to our parents? Honor. And would you say honor is to love them or to hate them? Yeah. What, what about our spouse? It says that you hate your wife right there. What about our spouse? If you look in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, how are you supposed to love your wife? Like Christ. That means die, sacrifice, give up stoop down to lift up. That's what you're supposed to do. Wives, love your husbands. Respect them. You see, so Jesus is not giving us permission to go and hate. He's saying, no, 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 no. Love me supremely. Jesus is saying this. I am to be your priority. Love everyone else just a little less than me. And we would all give that a hearty amen, wouldn't we? But do we? Do we, do we actually live that out? Is Jesus our main priority in life? Or does Jesus, he's just one of our many priorities. As a matter of fact, my other priorities will come before Jesus, and Jesus will have to take a back seat quite a bit. As a matter of fact, I don't sacrifice for Jesus. I sacrifice Jesus for other things. Hey, this is a freebie. I'm going to try to help you with this. As an individual, as a human being, the greatest way you can flourish, the way you will understand purpose and your value, and really understand the world around you and yourself and relationships is to make Jesus your number one priority. It really is. Just like to honor him in everything and to follow him in everything as best you can, asking forgiveness when you fail. Absolutely. And if you're married, listen to me, if you're married, the greatest thing you can give your marriage is that each one of you love Jesus supremely. Because we're told something different. No, no, you are to love your spouse and sacrifice everything for your spouse and give up everything for your spouse, not Jesus. As you both love Jesus more and more, Ephesians 5.20 says that he's drawing us closer and closer together. You want to be close to your spouse? Love Jesus more. And then we have kids. And then sometimes when we get kids, we think, oh, no, no, I'm going to make my children the priority now. Why? Because I didn't have the opportunities they have, and so I'm going to give them every opportunity I didn't have, and I'm also going to help them avoid every mistake I made. Isn't that what we parents do? Am I right? At least we think that, don't we? And so here's what we do. Here's what we do. And just, I love you, and we say, I don't do that. Look at your life. Look at your life. We will sacrifice Jesus, and we will sacrifice our marriage for the sake of our kids. And we'll say, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what's best for them. Can, can, can I, I, I want to be your friend right now. It's not. The greatest thing you can give your children is your love for Jesus. The second greatest thing you can give your children is your love for your spouse. Your children need to see you love one another and prioritize each other as Christ is your highest priority. When we sacrifice everything for them, we'll be left with nothing. Yeah, we do sacrifice for our kids. And yes, we do help them. Yeah, absolutely. But the greatest gift we can give them is love Jesus and love your spouse. Blank stares. Cool. Does that make sense? Okay, back to our text. Paul's saying that God chose to put Jacob above Esau. He made Jacob the priority. He loved more. And the only reason why Jacob received the promise was because God, because God is gracious. God is merciful. So Paul's beginning to clarify this promise that he's made to his people. 
but we can see from today that God's word does not fail. So question, what is God going to do with Israel? And what about all this election stuff? And how does that affect me? And how does it affect others who are elect or who are not elect? And the answer is, come back next week and we'll find out. I want to pray for us. And so if you could just get in a kind of a, a posture of prayer. Before I pray for us, with, with eyes closed and about, I, I want to read a text over us. And then I want to pray for us. The text is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And as we, just in the spirit of prayer, I want you to hear this and be blessed by this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your grace and kindness. Thank you so much for your purpose. God, I know that some of this language in the Bible is jarring to some people. I know many of us come from different church backgrounds and different teachings. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would um, let's have a bit of clarity, a bit of, a bit of wisdom, a bit of discernment to really understand your word and to trust you in it. God, your word is good and this news is good. And so, God, would you help us this week as we wrestle through this and think through what's going on in the text. May you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in a heart to understand it. And God, I do pray that uh, as a church, uh, that, that, that we would be a church of saved people, that we have been born again. And God, I know you are faithful and mighty to save. And so if there's someone here today or someone's, many, maybe a lot of people, God, you are good to save. And so would you save them? Would you give them desires? Would you give them a heart for you? Would you give them repentance and faith to trust you? And as you're doing that, God, would you bring great unity to us, especially in this season of change. And may everything we do just bring you great honor and glory and be for the name of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.